It's been quite a news cycle, hasn't it? Maybe like me, you're feeling especially agitated, disoriented today. I mean, we were already stumbling around in a season of dis-ease, right? I became aware of my own disorientation when the news of Jeffrey Epstein's suicide scrolled into view on my computer screen yesterday morning. A stunning development in an already overwrought story of power and privilege and great wealth and child abuse dusted with political glitter. We surely haven't heard the end of this sordid mess that describes another dollop of deadly decadent decay in American culture. If you're like me, questions gurgle up from the pit of our stomachs like these. How does something this dark and sinister fester for as long as it has? Who are these supposedly elite people, really? Where is the moral compass among Epstein's friends and acquaintances and business partners and lawyers and everyone else who joined the party? What a rotten, stinking mess all around. You know, in family systems, theory, Epstein would be described as the identified patient or client within an otherwise dysfunctional system of enablers. We live in an enabling society to destructive ends. But then nothing overshadows the carnage in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas, and Gilroy, California, not to mention Chicago, and over 250 other towns and cities that have experienced mass shootings this year already. That's more than one a day. The fact that the Dayton shooter accomplished his murderous rampage in just 30 seconds boggles the mind and stuns our conscience over the national lust for military weapons. And the emergence of the El Paso gunman's manifesto shatters any lingering naivete anyone might have concerning the unambiguous white tribalist anxiety in our culture. I mean, sure, he's an extremist, but but he's part also of a cultural continuum of white supremacist demagoguery that stretches back to at least four centuries ago when the first slaves arrived on our shores. By the way, 2019 is the 400th anniversary of that inglorious, contemptible event. Some had mistakenly believed our racist past had largely dissipated. Surprise! Or we might say, wake up! Many of you received a pastoral message from me this week in response to these mass shootings. And if you'll indulge me, I feel the need to kind of read it into the record, as it were. 
sort of for my sake. <laughs> Here's what I said. Among recurring lessons accompanying the horrific news of mass shootings is this. The common bonds of our national identity are fracturing. We are losing the sense of common cause that binds us together, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice. For whom? For all. Perpetrators may be described as agitated loners, but they are also harbinger of a larger malaise in our land. The increasing frequency of these acts of terror, coupled with white supremacist ideology and massive capacity weaponry, sounds the alarm that each of us has a role to play in how our common life shall proceed. Up and down the ladders of privilege and power, it matters how we speak of one another. If our words and actions reveal a commitment to either building or sundering community. This is as true in each of our houses as it is in the White House. All of us share the responsibility for the health and vigor of our national character in providing a safe and wholesome environment for every person and family in our land. The emanations from the El Paso Manifesto should send a chill down our spines, insisting violence is the solution to solving white tribalist anxieties. Our nation's original sin of racism remains the go-to weapon of choice for those bent on fear-mongering, and fear remains our great enemy. It lies behind every sort of tribalist anxiety. Our scriptures lay down the gauntlet on this by proclaiming, perfect love casts out all fear. Ah, yes, love of God above all things and love of neighbor as ourselves remains our core value at Christ Church. The perfect seeming antidote to the tenor of our moment, a resilient bulwark in the face of many adversities, and a call for us to grow into the people God intended in the first place. Out of loving concern for those who have died and those who grieve, we offer humble, earnest prayers of support. We yearn for their eventual healing. Holy God, bless these innocent victims. But let's be very clear that prayer is just the beginning. Prayer also serves as a call to rejoin the ranks of those who are seeking to build wholesome community for all of God's offspring while standing against tribalist racism of every sort, every sort of fear-mongering of the dreaded other. In this, I hope we stand hand in hand our work of love to the benefit of the common good. As always, I persist in gratitude for the community of Christ Church. I find strength in our common bond to love well while standing against the forces that seek to divide and demean and deny human dignity. 
Joining our hands, hearts, and voices amplifies our individual intentions. May God bless us in this continuing endeavor. This morning, it seems to me we have at least two principal tasks in front of us. The first one is to be very clear-eyed about the truth of our situation, to look it straight on in the face, to make an unsentimental assessment of our national malaise, to forthrightly identify the rise of white supremacist demagoguery, how tribalist ideas tempt our own allegiances, and to confess our own complicity in separating people into categories of better and worse based on entirely ridiculous criteria always discovering our own superiority. Holy God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But secondly, and importantly, let's be very clear that followers after the way of Jesus, the way Jesus blazed, are bound together in hope. We are anchored in resurrection. We believe we are loved by God beyond our wildest imaginings and that nothing in life or in death can separate us from God's great love in Christ Jesus our Lord. We align our values with His. We strive to love in the manner that He loved. Listening to God's voice, we step out in faith, as we heard Abraham did in our readings this morning, not knowing exactly where he was going. That's what the text said. But confident in God's abiding presence and leadership. And friends, this faith, let's be clear that this faith isn't simply an internal self-help program. Sure, there are tangible personal benefits that accrue to those who welcome Christ into their lives. But the most important benefits aren't based in success as described by motivational and prosperity preachers. That is largely a distraction from the real spiritual program. The most important benefits relate to learning how to love well. God, ourselves, and others. And then growing into the people God intended in the first place. That's the spiritual program we, we're embracing here. From that vantage point, faithful Christianity is in part a character formation project. We're all works in progress. We're all amalgams of good intentions and bad. But throwing our lot in with Jesus, we're staking a claim on listening to the better angels of our nature, joining hearts and hands with others who struggle to do the same thing. We listen hard to the wisdom of Scripture and the spirit that whispers in our inner being. Do you hear that spirit ever whispering in your inner being? 
Among the inescapable conclusions we draw is that God is God of all things, all people, everywhere. Everyone shares the same sacred DNA. How could it be otherwise, honestly? We are all creatures of the same earth and universe, all dependent upon the same air and water and food. This truth provides the context for understanding God's justice, how justice is an aspect of God's love. When we strive for justice, we're also striving to love well. And as I've underscored lately, this means that justice should inspire our politics. And I don't hear partisanship, but politics, yes. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was an ardent abolitionist, which in his day was in a minority opinion. Being an abolitionist meant he relentlessly advocated for political outcomes for the sake of the enslaved. Why? Because of his faith in the God of love. Like Abraham, he died before he would see the complete vindication of his conviction. But the vindication came. We now take this position for granted, don't we? But look at the residual mess that remains. The white supremacist mindset does not die easily. That's now our work. That's now our work, our responsibility for the sake of love and justice. From where I stand, how I read scripture, how I listen to the still small voice in my inner being, it's impossible to draw any other conclusion as I try to follow the pattern that Jesus set before me. You know, there's an obvious connection to why the 20th century, century civil rights movement drew its inspiration and strength from within the African-American church, because at root it was a spiritual revolution at heart. And you know, I remember well back in the 60s, growing up in primarily white churches, that we were taught not to talk politics in church. That admonition has lingered down over the decades. That was not the case in the African-American church. You know why? Their lives depended on it. And in the white church, the old supremacist attitude was holding at bay in a defensive posture, lest we actually listen to what Jesus had to say.
Wesley famously said, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. What a motto, right? What a motto. Let me say it again. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. In other words, there's no compartmentalizing here. We're not either, we're either all in on this matter of following Jesus or we're not. We can't sequester the Lord of love into one precious little aspect of life and leave it at that. All in, all the time, everywhere. And everyone's included. Everyone joins the party. Everyone welcome to the table of grace. Everyone. You know, as we baptized little Aliana this morning, did you not sense the potential in the love in that family and the faith? We were privileged to share with her parents their joy and their hope in their life together. And in a way, they are like Abraham, holding God's promise for their future in their hands and hearts. They have no way of knowing what lies ahead for each of them but they anchor themselves in love for the sake of love with a confident expectation of God's providential care. That's what we Christians do. That's what we do. That's where we find our strength. That's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our meaning. That's where we find our direction. And all that for which we yearn, we may not see in our lifetimes, but still it, it is out there beckoning us on to live into the grace and love that has been so abundantly showered upon us. What a wonderful gift that is, and what a necessity of a message it is to take out into the world. It's the only thing I know of honestly, that has such a powerful opportunity at transforming our world. Yes?